0: Good morning. Good morning, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name's Lily, I'm a deacon at the church here, and I'm delighted to share some scripture with you folks this morning. If you'd like to turn to page sev- 771 in your pew Bible, we're going to start with Acts chapter 2 verse 14, and then we'll jump to verses 22 to 32. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd fellow Jews and all of you live in Jerusalem let me explain this to you listen carefully to what i say men of israel listen to this jesus of nazareth was a man accredited by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did among you through him as you yourselves know this man has handed over to you by god's this man was handed over to you by god's set purpose My body will also live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you lay your holy, nor will you let your holy one say, see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, brothers. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath. Promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. And then first Peter chapter one, verses three through nine on page eight hundred and fifty-seven. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, an instant inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice through though now for a little while you may have had a, to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, to, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do did, you did not see him now, You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God bless the hearing of his word. Good morning. I know I'm not Barbara Jernigan, and I don't have a basket today, but I do have a tote bag, and I think that's good enough. Everyone can hear me, right? Okay, cool. How was everyone's weekend? Good, cool. Well, my weekend was fantastic. I climbed Mount Everest yesterday. See, I heard someone say, no way, right? That doesn't sound believable, right? What if I told you this morning I woke up and brushed my hair and my teeth and washed my face? That would be more believable, right? At least, I I hope so. I hope it looks like I did, or at least tried to. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe things, and I'd like to demonstrate that a little bit, so if I could just ask my sister Maddie to come up. I have a fun little activity for us. To clarify, she did consent to this. I'm not harassing her, I promise. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to I'm going to blindfold you and then I'm going to put something in your hands, okay? No, it's okay. I promise. We're fine. Ready? Can you see? Okay. No? Okay. I can't No. Yeah, it's really not. It's just the not-seeing thing that I care about. But I'm going to ask you to put your hands out. You can face forward. It's okay. So I'm going to put something in your hands, and I want to see if you believe me, because I'm going to be honest with you about what I'm putting in your hands, okay? Maddie, I just, I just put a lamb in your hands. Do you believe me? A little stuffed lamb? No, because you don't own one of those. Are you sure? Did you buy one? Do you not have faith in me that I just put a small oh, really? stuffed lamb in your hands? No. <laughs> Do you want I'll take the blindfold off. Oh my I you I told you I wouldn't lie to you. You you didn't seek out any evidence that I was not being faithful towards you. It was soft, it was squishy. But you didn't believe me. You let it go right over your head. And you filled yourself with doubt. Okay, you can sit down now. She was being dramatic. Probably. So actually, I took this from the one scripture that Kathleen wasn't gonna use today, um, but I was not gonna change my children's message because I liked this one. But today's passage for John is all about the story of doubting Thomas, who is very skeptical of Jesus' resurrection. And for our friends that don't do good with big words, resurrection is when Christ came back from the dead. Um, And sometimes we have trouble believing other people, just like Thomas and just like Maddie did. Sometimes we go out and we seek evidence for things because we can't always see physical evidence and we fill ourselves with doubt. We can't always be like Thomas and touch the wounds on Christ's body. Sometimes God provides us with evidence of good things that we just can't see. But the more we put our belief and faith in God and that He's doing good things for us, the less doubt we'll have. Everyone deserves to feel the love of a lamb, of the lamb, even if it's just a little tiny stuffed animal, or if it's Jesus Christ Himself. Sometimes it's really hard to believe. But I think if we pray for each other and we put our best foot forward, we will no longer fill ourselves with doubt. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless the ears who have listened to the message. Allow them to take your love, your scars and wounds, and turn them into relentless faith, one that exceeds doubt and skepticism. Let's go forth and rejoice. Amen.
1: Oh Lord my God when I an awesome wonder I love singing together Lord I kind of wish that we could do it all the time and even that we didn't have to I didn't have to do a sermon we could just keep singing but Sue only told me that I could give two songs so here we are but in all honesty Lord thank you for the good gift of having to think through your word having to process with your spirit having to wrestle with what you're saying. And Lord, thank you for the goodness that comes through when we do those things and when we do them together. Lord, would you open up our hearts, open up our minds, pour out your spirit on us now and in the coming days and weeks so that we might do that again together. Lord, you are so good and you are so kind and you have so much more for us than we can even begin to imagine. Would you help us to, to press into that now? Press into your word. Press into your spirit, in Jesus' name, and for His glory's sake, Amen. Well, I'm. Uh, that was an honest prayer. I love it whenever Sue uh, plays the organ, and even I always say, even though she doesn't love to play it, I know she loves the piano. More. She she does it for me because she's just so kind. Um, yeah. So we. We're, we're going to try some things today. We're going to try maybe a slide or two. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. I was also thinking as long. I wonder how long this will take to fall off the back of the thing here, but I always get dry mouth when I'm speaking, so you guys are with me, right? You're going to, no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Barbara's like, yeah, why not? Let's see. It's going to be great. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but I... I've been really in this, like, just got to get through season. Like, I had a, I, some of you know that I work with um, college students, and we had, in late March, it was just get through the winter retreat, and then it was just get through the Easter sunrise service, and then it was, oh, just get through preaching here, and then next week I'm actually going away with my family, and it's like, oh, just get through that to get through that. Like, my to-do list is quite long because it's like, thing after thing after thing after thing, and as I was kind of thinking about it, um, I'm sure that a lot of you can relate, like, I know Barb and Katie are both teachers, and this is spring break, and same thing with Maddie and Tommy, it's like, oh, just got to get through this thing, and then I got to get through that thing, and then I can hit spring break, and, and different things like that, like, and I wonder if that's ever something that you've struggled with with Easter, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of you cook a big meal, or you've got family in from out of town, or anything like that, and it can feel like Easter is just a lot of just-got-to-get-throughs. Anybody ever felt like that? Okay, yes, yes. And I actually wonder if that does us a disservice in how we think about Easter. Because Easter was never meant to just be one day. It was meant to be a season in the life of the church. We've This last year we've been working our way through the... Revised Common Lectionary, which is this collection of um, different scripture passages that we read together as a church family. And if you're following along with that, you'll notice that in the coming weeks, these scripture passages are labeled 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th Sunday of Easter. What that's getting at is that Easter is not just a day, Easter is a season, right? Like it's not, ju- and which I didn't grow up that way, so this is new for me, <laughs> like ooh cool like like it's it's not just a day it's a season and all the way up to pentecost is when we are going to be celebrating easter not just once at the sunrise service not just for a day but for a whole series of weeks 7 weeks hmm interesting number of completeness 7 weeks and this the idea is that we we would start to be formed by how we celebrate so by not just celebrating for one day, but actually having a season that we dedicate to Easter, we are we are saying that we are in an Easter world now. We're not in the world before. We're in an Easter world, a world where the power of the cross has broken into the world around us and is starting to shape it, is starting to affect it. The world we know before has changed because of Resurrection Sunday. That's what it means to be in an Easter world. So the idea is basically that we're not just meant to celebrate Easter and then move on to the next thing, like I've been doing. <laughs> there's a there's a commentator, well, he's a really brilliant and helpful theologian named N.T. Wright, and he talks about how the restriction that we've just done in Lent, so people fast or they, they give up certain things or whatever, it's meant to be a season of restriction or preparation before Easter. Um, some of our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, they will actually not eat meat or bread or pasta for all of Lent. They like drop like 10 pounds, like it's a real thing. I had a friend in college who did that. Um, And the restriction of of Lent is meant to be matched by the celebration of Easter. And again, not just for a day, but for a season. N.D. Wright talks about this idea that we should be feasting for weeks after Easter. Like it should be a party for weeks, not just a day. I really love that idea, that it's, it's not just all packed into one day, but it's a season of celebrating. So for the coming seven weeks or so, we are actually going to be, as we go through our sermons, we're going to be talking about how everything is good now because of Easter. Good this, good that, good news. How does, how does the resurrection affect all of these things? And so for our topic today, we're going to be talking about good thinking. Yeah, Good thinking. So that's where we're headed. Um, so yeah, so we're gonna walk our way through this idea of good thinking, and I hope it's gonna give you something good to think about. Um, if not, no worries. The regular preacher will be back next week, and she can <laughs> she can take us back to where we probably should have been anyway. No. All right. So like I said, some of you uh, some of you know that I work with college students, um, and I try to help them in their their life of faith and explaining things about. Um, the Bible and Jesus and and Christianity to them in ways that they can understand. Um, And I am teasing Ron a little bit here that I never do anything in pictures. Even at the Sunrise Service, Ron was like, well, where's the pictures? Well, we've got some pictures for you today, Ron. So this is actually, it's silly, but this is what I do to college students all the time is I will draw them pictures to explain um, what I'm talking about because I tend to think in in metaphors. So we're going to be drawing pictures, and then the other thing that we're going to be doing What I'm teaching the students to do in how they read the Bible is I'm teaching them to do three things. I'm teaching them to observe what's going on in the text, and then I'm teaching them to interpret what's going on in the text, and then finally we talk about how does that apply to my life. Because for a lot of us, or at least me when I was growing up, I thought that Jesus wrote the Bible just to me. (laughs) So when I was reading about something, I was like, oh, I'm supposed to go and do exactly that right now. And sometimes that's true, but we also have to remember that the, writ- the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written directly to us all the time. Makes sense? There was actually people that got the, they got the email or they got the letter first, and we're getting it down the email chain, if that makes sense. So we're going to walk our way through those three movements, if you will. We're going to observe, then we're going to spend some time interpreting, and finally we'll land the plane and say, okay, what does this mean for us? And I really would encourage you to stay in those first two brackets first, explore around a little bit and then bring it down to us because sometimes i think we can get a little bit like too fast with it when we want to just get to what it means for us right here right now we're kind of a fast food culture we don't want to take the time to let things stew and cook a little bit we want to just drive through drive through well we're going to go to lorna's house she's going to cook us some real good food but it's going to take us a minute to get there okay yeah cool better lorna's house than mine i mean you could you won't starve but you might not taste great <laughs> if you come to my house you're did know i'm kidding All right, so the questions that we want to ask in this first step is observation. Basic things like, who's talking? Who are they talking to? What's the reason for the communication or the letter? I've got this one student, Holly, who she just came to faith in, in the fall and she just got baptized a couple weeks ago. She never fails to ask the question whenever we sit down for a Bible study. She says, who wrote this? And When I explained to her a couple weeks ago that, well, the Apostle Paul writes like half the New Testament. She's like, really? <laughs> and it was so cute. But it's a really great question to always ask. Who's writing? Who's talking? Why are, they, why are they talking? What's going on? Who are they talking to? Okay, so let's have a look at who Peter's talking to in Acts. I'm actually going to ask you to open up your Bibles, which is why I had Lily read um, where our page numbers is. So if you were looking in Acts, It's going to be page 771. Anybody got any ideas who Peter is talking to in Acts? That's good. What about verse 14 of the scene? You're right. Peter. uh, The book itself is written to Theophilus, but in this scene that we just read where Peter is standing up and he's preaching... Who is he talking to? A crowd of Jews. Awesome. And do you know where they are? Jerusalem. Okay, this is the religious hotspot of the area. People are on pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over the world, or all over the Mediterranean rim, and they are in Jerusalem. And Peter is talking to them. So they might be they might be from Asia Minor. They might be from Greece. They might be from uh, modern day Saudi Arabia, but they're actually coming to Jerusalem and their and their Jews. Okay, what happened right before this scene? or what what big thing is is kind of? Yes. Um, what happened with Jesus right before uh, right before the book of Acts? Yeah, so this is right after the original Easter Sunday. 40 days, he ascends into heaven and then this happens, right? Yeah, okay, so literally Jesus just died and just rose again like a month and a week ago. Is that, that's where we are. Okay, what does he say to this crowd of Jews in Jerusalem? Yeah. Okay. So, hey guys, you screwed up and you killed Jesus, but it's okay because you can repent and you can you can be part of his new life that he's just that he's just bought for everybody. Cool. All right. It's so a very simple, very basic, it's the gospel. This Jesus whom you crucified has risen from the dead and he has new life to offer. Do you want him? This is the gospel. This is the good news that we just talked about last week. And it's on offer for you guys that are here in Jerusalem. You didn't know that he was the son of God. You killed him, but you can have this too. This is the gospel. Possibly. And, you know, that's the hard part. Yeah, that's the hard part about the, the the reading the the Bible is that we sometimes it's hard to determine tone. Um, I'm actually not sure, so I have I have no idea. Um, but I, I want us to notice. Okay, this is what's going on in Acts. Literally, death, burial, resurrection just happened. Jews are in Jerusalem, and G- and Peter, who is a Jew, is speaking to other Jews. Okay, and he basically here's the gospel. Here it is. This is what just happened. Let me explain it to you. All right, let's go over to First Peter. Our other text for this morning. Making you guys work. <laughs> Don't worry, like I say, Pastor Jen's coming back. You can get the regular preacher next week. <laughs> Alright, First Peter. If you look in First Peter one and two, chapter one, verses one and two, who's Peter talking to? A little louder. Believers? Where? Everywhere. Yeah, so I didn't, I'm not trying to make you stumble over these awkward names, Lorna, sorry. Okay, a lot of places. Maddie, if you could throw up our first slide for us, I want to show you guys something. Peter is talking to people in these places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is modern-day Turkey. That's where these guys are. So we have a, our first big shift. Peter isn't talking to people in Jerusalem that are Jews. He's talking to people in Asia Minor. Most likely people that he's never met. And not only is he talking to people that would have been Jewish Christians, people that would have known the story of the Old Testament and lived their lives in that way, but he's most likely talking to people that are Gentile Christians also. You see here Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, Asia, this is this is all of the places where these people live. So Yes, he's talking to everybody, but this letter first got sent to, to this place right here. These are what we might call Asiatic Christians, or, I mean, this is modern-day Turkey. It wasn't called Turkey back then, but these are Turkish Christians back in the day. Very similar, yeah. This is a hot spot. There's a lot going on here. Okay, so this is super interesting because if you notice, this is, like I say, both Jewish and Gentile Christians that are scattered throughout this whole area, it's very likely that people from this area were the, were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost that we just read about. This is crazy, because the letter that Peter is writing right here is probably written around 60 to 64 AD, which is about 30 years after the scene that we just read in Acts. Yeah, so it's very likely that Peter, as a young man, he gets up and he's preaching in Jerusalem. Those guys would have heard it and taken it back to their hometown, and it's either them or their kids or their grandkids that Peter is now writing to. This is crazy because this is this is all interconnected. Okay, so again, super interesting questions to ask when Paul was preaching. Our Paul, not the Apostle Paul, when our Paul was preaching a, a year or two ago, he was talking about using. How to find Bible gold, you've got to get your Bible shovel out to go find the Bible gold, you've got to dig a little bit, this is gold, because when you start to ask some good questions, when you start to observe what's going on, you can start to make some connections that you didn't realize before. When you just ask, well, when was this letter written? Well, this letter was written between 60 and 64 A.D. Well, what else was happening in the world around that time? What else was happening in Rome around that time? Anybody know? okay if you don't. This is me being a nerd. Thank you for indulging me. Okay. No biggie. Like I say, this is me in my Wikipedia search. It's pretty awesome. Big thing that was happening in the world at the time between 60 and, si- 60 and 70 AD, Rome Nero was the emperor of Rome. Anybody know anything about Nero? He was crazy was a little, wow. (laughs) And when when Barbara says he was crazy, like, let me tell you what she means. So his rule was commonly associated with things like impulsiveness and tyranny. Like, this man killed his own mother. I don't care, like, okay, we might say, oh my gosh, Mom, like, get off my back. We're never going to kill our own mother. I mean, come on. Like, he killed his own mother, and then he ordered his leading, like, advisor, the famous philosopher Seneca, he ordered him to, to die by suicide. Like, this guy was paranoid and power-hungry, okay? He's the one that's in charge of the world right now when we're ri- when Peter's writing this letter. Now when you start to ask questions like, well, where was Peter when he was writing this letter? Peter was in Rome. In fact, four years, between one and four years after this letter is written, Peter is going to be killed for his faith. So Peter is not sitting on a beach drinking pina coladas writing this letter about suffering. He's living it. He's not just kind of sitting back, you know, relaxing. He's living what he's writing. And that should actually color a little bit of, of how we receive it and even how the, how the original recipients received it. Is Peter wasn't just sitting on the sidelines saying, hey, go do this, go do this. No, no, no. He was in the trenches with the people that he was writing to. He was sharing in their experience. So, again, all of that is going to try to, like I think, frame out for us when we then finally come to the text, what he has to say about joy and suffering takes on a whole new hue, right? Because if you are dealing with something, some really intense stuff, whether it's a cancer diagnosis or the loss of a loved one, whether it's fear about not having a job and knowing that you need one or something even more intense, it makes a difference the person that's trying to cheer you up or giving you advice, if they know what that feels like, you take their, their words a lot more weighty than if it's if, if somebody that's never known what that feels like, right? So my question for us to focus on today is what happened between the act scene and this letter to transform Peter and how does that speak to this idea of good thinking? So we're going to move now from observing. Now we're going to move into interpreting. We're going to kick around that question. What are, what's the difference between Acts and 1 Peter? And how could that actually give us an idea of, of this, this concept of the need for good thinking? What do you mean by that, Kathleen? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. Cool. What I see happening here, if we were to spend time, and I'm... I'm trying to get us to spend some time, but really we've only got a little bit of time, so I I recommend you do this on your own. What I see happening here is that Peter is actively applying the resurrection to new categories. He is pastorally leading the Asiatic Christians to do the same. So in Acts, he tells them the gospel. This Jesus whom you crucified, he has been risen from the dead, and you too can have life in him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's true, and it's real. And then, 30 years later, as, as these Christians in Asia Minor are about to experience a lot of persecution, Peter's going to take that news of the resurrection, and he's going to apply it to their current situation. He's going to help them almost do a proof text. Um, I don't know if, if you guys remember this, but when you're in high school and you did proofs for math, if this, then this, Rand's like, oh my gosh, I'm having flashbacks, please don't, yeah. (laughs) If X, then Y. If Q, then R. If, like, A, then B. It's a proof text. If this is true, then that means this. And Peter's going to help them do that in applying it to a new category of suffering. If the resurrection is true, then that means that this is how suffering changes. This is how something else changes. And I think this is super, it's going to be super applicable to our, us later. i will help us maybe unpack that a little bit more. Um, but I, I think this has a lot of good news to offer us as well. Okay, so here we go. Confession time. How many of you have had poison ivy? How many of you want to have poison ivy again? Good, good answer. <laughs> um, So I have had poison ivy three times in my life, and each time I've had a pretty severe reaction to it. The first time I had it on the back of my leg, and I accidentally crossed my legs before I realized that I had it. So I had it on the shin on one side, and I had it on the calf on the other. The one on the calf, I'm telling you, it was that long, and it was that far off my skin. It looked like a giant caterpillar. It was horrible. Second time I got it, I was weed whacking and I was listening to a podcast or a sermon and my earbuds kept falling out. So I was like, oh, no big deal. put them back in. I got poison ivy all over my ears. (laughs) The third time I got poison ivy was two summers ago. And I was out in my, I literally live in a condo complex. It's like people mow my yard. There's no reason there should be poison ivy in my front yard. But I was like, oh, I've got ten minutes before I have to zip over here let me quickly just pull all these weeds out of my front yard. I washed my hands, but I didn't realize that I had gotten the oil on the back of my hands. And not realizing that I had the oil on the back of my hands, I must have slept on my hands. I got poison ivy all over my neck and my chin. Now this, at this point, like, like I am so uncomfortable. I, like, I, I went to a Red Sox game with my sister, and I couldn't even enjoy it. I'm just like, don't. Don't scratch. Don't scratch. Right? Okay. So I tell you all of that because you—so many of you—you raised your hand. You know what it's like to have something that just is so like you're like I would do anything to get this itch like away. I would do anything to make this better, right? So I've got a good friend. He works for um, the state of Massachusetts and does like the Asian longhorn beetle. He's he's all about like eradicating that or whatever. Long story short, he works out in the woods a lot heading over to their house for dinner, and I'm was like, hey, man, like, you got anything to help with this? And he's like, yeah, actually, I do. I have this, this thing called Zanzel. I recommend that to you for anybody that's actually gotten into poison ivy. Wicked expensive. It's like $40 for a tube like this, okay? But what you got to do is you pour it out on your hand, and you have to actually activate it before you scrub it into your skin. It's almost a little bit like, um, uh, almost gritty, like a little sandpaper-ish, kind of. And it's super interesting to me because I think this actually has a lot to do with what we're talking about. I'm not just going on a rabbit trail here. Think about it like this. When I am literally covered in poison ivy, to get the relief that I want, I can't just dab it on. I actually have to, the way that this medicine works is I have to scrub it in. I literally was sitting in the bathroom singing, you are my sunshine, so I wouldn't have to think about what I was doing. <laughs> but I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to like, uh but I had to scrub it in. I had to activate the material. I had to scrub it into my skin. And this little bitty thing was super expensive to buy. Now let's transfer that to the gospel. This little bitty thing was super expensive to buy. The blood of Jesus was super expensive. And we can't just dab it on the areas of our lives that have spiritual poison ivy. We have to rub it in to activate it. And you rub it in, and that's actually how you get the relief that you're looking for. Now, this is what I mean by good thinking. For so many things, we can't just let the, the reality of the resurrection sit on the surface of our lives. We have to activate it, and we have to scrub it in. We have to think about the implications and work a little bit. Now, don't stress out if you're like, oh, I feel, that feels really hard. This is a lifelong process, and this is something that we do in community. This is not just go and stare at the wall and drink tea and you'll have an epiphany. No, this is us together as a body. This is over a long period of time. But I want us to get our thoughts around this idea that we have to do some good thinking. The only way that we're going to experience the relief that is ours in Christ, that has been purchased for us on the cross, is if we take that really expensive tube that Jesus has handed us in his blood and we actually scrub it into the areas that need it most. So let's look at how Peter does that for the Asiatic Christians. Probably making up that word, but whatever. Asia Minor. He helps them apply the truth of the gospel to their present circumstances. He walks them through what the resurrection actually means for them It's like he's giving them this tube and he says, okay guys, scrub it in. Scrub it into this area that has poison ivy all over it. This area of suffering that you've been in and that you're about to go in more. Here, this is what it looks like to apply the truth of the resurrection to that area so that you can have relief, so that you can have joy even amidst the the circumstances that aren't going to change. So he helps them spell it out. And specifically, um, I want us to kind of watch and look for um, his logical connections, and this this might again might be something that we spend more time with just on our own. But if you follow through his this section that we read in First Peter, this idea that okay, we live in verse three b. If we live with great expectation, we have because of Jesus's death, we have now been given an inheritance that is imperishable, cannot fade cannot spoil, is not subject to inflation, is not subject to rust or decay or theft or anything like that. Now, these are really poor people that he's writing to, so that would have been incredible, this idea that we have something that is wicked valuable and cannot be cannot be destroyed. But if you let that sink in, okay, God has given me a life that cannot be destroyed, cannot perish, cannot be tainted by anything, and this li- this life is kept in heaven for me. It's kept we had time; we'd bounce around to a couple of different places in Romans eight and a few other places. But this idea that because Jesus's death has broken the power of death, that means now that death, this thing that I've lived my entire life avoiding and trying to trying to push off, this thing has no power over me anymore. Because if if Jesus in his resurrection, has, actu- has essentially, it's like this light here. If I were to pull the cord out from the wall socket, there's no power left in this light. There's no power left in death anymore. And what Peter's trying to get them to do is he's trying to say, okay, if there really is no power in death anymore, you don't have to be afraid of it. This news, this good thinking, thinking through the implications of the resurrection, has turned the world upside down. Because when you really slow down and you start to think about it, we have the we have the the good benefit of not living in a tyrannical society. If you were to if you and I, I say this with a huge footnote, I don't know what it's like to live in North Korea. There's so many things throughout history, so many empires throughout history that it was Fear, and specifically fear of death, is the tyrant's tool to get you to do whatever he wants, most likely. If you're afraid of dying, I can do all kinds of things to you to get you to do what I want. Because if you rebel, I could either kill you or kill people you care about. That's a very, very strong motivator. But what if that thing that you're terrified of has no power anymore? Suddenly the tyrant had lost his tool. And throughout history, Christians that have really worked through the implications of the resurrection have done the mental gymnastics of good thinking, have been able to walk into this freedom of the fear of death. This idea that this thing that I'm terrified of, this ginormous, take, take, take your scariest monster, your ginormous rattlesnake, Jesus has walked up behind it and snapped off its venomous thing. You still hear the rattle, you still hear, and you still see death, but it's lost its power. And like I say, if you look through history, when people lose their fear of death because of the resurrection, the tyrant loses. Later on, um, later I'll just I'll ruin the punchline for my own self. Whatever. But so I've been giving you a bunch of dates and places and stuff. So Peter's letter is written in 64 A.D. Most likely, he's killed in 60 between 64 and 68 A.D. By 112 A.D., which is about 60 years later, this area of the world is about to experience a whole lot of persecution by the Roman Empire. And this guy named um, Pliny, or Pliny the Younger, is a governor of Bithynia and Pontus right up on top there. And we have a letter that he writes to the emperor Trajan back in Rome about, what do I do with all these Christians? They won't burn incense to the emperor anymore. What do I do with them? And Trojan, um, the emperor, writes back and he basically says, well, I don't want you to go seeking out people to put on trial, but if they're standing before you, I want you to give them three chances to, ne- to deny their faith and burn incense to the emperor. And if they do that, if they burn, great, let them go. But if they insist, I'm a Christian, I won't do that. I'm a Christian, I won't do that. I'm a Christian, I won't do that. I want you to kill them. And I was writing as I was reading about this, it's super interesting. Peter is their pastor, he's, he's their pastor, he's speaking to them. And if you remember, Good Friday, Maundy Thursday, how many times did Peter deny Christ? How many times did Jesus reinstate him? Almost like Peter was the perfect pastor for these people. Hey, you're going to need this, I know what this is like. Trust me, Jesus has beaten death. You can trust him. Crazy, crazy stuff. So what I want us to kind of imagine is, and this is, you know, this is something that is very possible, but we don't have it spelled out in the in the gospels exactly. I want you to imagine Peter the pastor from the first sermon that he gave in Acts to the end of his life, thirty years later, where he's he's in a jail cell in Rome writing this letter to these people that he loves and preparing them for what he knows is coming. I think that Peter has done what he's encouraging these guys to do throughout his life. I think Peter has taken the tube of Zanzel and he's actually applied it to himself in his following of Jesus in the 30 years between Acts and 1 Peter. A few years after the scene that we just read in Acts, Peter is going to have, his, uh, he's gonna have another come-to-Jesus moment where he's got to actually take the truth of the resurrection and apply it to a new area. He's got to scrub it in to a new area. There, some of you know the story where Peter, you know, at first, when he's, when he's first sort of in Acts, he uh, welcomes Gentile Christians, people that are not of a Jewish background, and he sits with them, he eats with them. And then a little bit later in his ministry, because of probably peer pressure, he doesn't sit with the Gentile Christians anymore. He only sits with the Jewish Christians. And the Apostle Paul has to p- call him out publicly and just be like, hey man, he says it differently than that. That's, that's my version. He's like, hey man, like, if the resurrection is true, that means that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Knock it off. And so he's, he, we see instances where Peter is taking the truth and he's doing the good thinking of working it out into different areas of his life. Not just the fear of death, but what does that mean for my relationships? What does that mean for how I'm pastoring? What does that mean for how I'm thinking about different groups of people or different areas of my life? And so I want to give us maybe two handholds here as we move to the application section of what does this mean for us. First handhold is that good thinking is the intentional working out of of, of the fact of the resurrection and its furthest implications. It's purposefully reframing everything in light of Jesus is the king and he's been risen from the dead. If this, then this. It's a purposeful, intentional if this, then this. And secondly, as we apply this to our lives, as we scrub in to our own lives, we are going to become more and more stable, more and more non-anxious, we're going to be able to be a non-anxious and stable presence to those around us just like Peter was able to do because he spent a lifetime doing this. That's how he was able then to pastor people in a super scary situation even when he's in the middle of his own end of life, basically. Okay. So what does that look like? All right, Maddie, we're ready for our next slide. Don't worry. This is now the, okay, so what Kathleen? Here's my so whatness. All right, give us, give us one back before that, bud. And one before that. And one before that. Just the three boxes. Okay, I want to suggest to you guys that these three boxes are three of the most challenging things to live out in our world how these three boxes relate to each other can trip you up or can help you out. And it all depends on where you start. I want you to imagine that this is a train. Which direction does the train get pulled? Toward me or toward the window? (laughs) Yes, that's how you crash your train. (laughs) But I'm with you, Sandy, I'm with you. Okay, what I want to suggest to you guys is that we have to do for ourselves and for each other, just what Peter did for his congregation in Bithynia and Pontus and Cappadocia and all of that. Peter was crossing cultural lines when he was helping them apply the gospel. These are Gentile Christians, or most a good mix of Gentile Christians, and even if they were Jewish Christians, they're living in a Greek town, okay? So he's, he's helping them cross cultural barriers and apply across a cultural barrier. You and I, We live in a different culture than Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That's not a shock. We've got to be aware of the culture that we're in if we're going to apply the gospel to it, right? Okay, so here's a big kicker about how does our culture operate. Maddie, if you could give us the next slide, that'd be great. Right now, our culture thinks that feelings pull the train. Whatever I feel is true. Now, if you feel that way, I'm not coming in for you. I'm not hating on you. This is not something that I'm sharing from a place of I've arrived and this is what it means. No, I'm saying that by and large our culture is what uh, and again this is, gonna, this is more time, I'm just kind of doing a drive by here. Our culture is something that operates out of a hyper focus on feelings. Whatever I'm feeling is true. Now let's take what Peter was saying and apply that to what, what I just said. If feelings are what's actually true. And if I let if I let that shape my experience of life, that means that whenever I hit suffering, suffering is an interruption to my life. It's an interruption of meaning. And I can't get meaning. I can't accomplish or achieve or it's keeping me from what my life is designed for, right? Or same thing with fear. If this is the way that things work, then The primary questions are, what do I feel? What do I want? What do I need? Very individualistic, and just to burst our bubbles, this is something that is cross-generational. So typically, I'm a millennial, typically millennials get blamed for this, um, that we're snowflakes and all these other things. Hi, I'm a millennial. But I would gently suggest this is true for the older generations as well. in th- you guys like you guys were kids in the 60s and 70s you totally owned the I feel vibe okay <laughs> like you guys were like free love and all these no like, I'm, I'm just kidding I'm kid- was like that was not my life no I'm just kidding Ex- exactly exactly what I'm trying to say though is that all generations actually struggle with this it just might look a little different a lot of times I think we can be afraid of the future we can be afraid of cultural change all these kinds of things And so my my challenge or my question that we need to kind of think through is how have we, or have we, rubbed in the resurrection into our skin over and over again in the areas that we need it most? And what would it look like if we did? What I want to suggest to you, Matt, if you could give us one more, is that the way that we scrub in the resurrection is by flipping the train. We start with, Focusing on the fact that the resurrection is true. I love, Lily's not here anymore, but um, the reality that, you know, she was talking about doubt and Thomas and, and all of this. The way that you speak to doubt is not by focusing on your feelings of doubt. is by focusing on the, the fact of the resurrection. If you can bring me the body of Christ, I have to deny my faith. And if I can say that to myself, if I can preach that to myself, eventually, if I can put my faith in the fact of the resurrection, my feelings will eventually fall into line. That's the antidote. That's the tool. That's how you scrub it in by focusing and working through the facts, and then your feelings will actually follow too eventually. That's not me saying that feelings are bad. feelings are really good, but sometimes they can actually get us off track. So, okay, let's land the plane because I know you're you're like, wow, wrap it up. Okay. So what I want to suggest is that we can we can tell by the tone of Peter's writing that he's bound to these Christians that he's likely never met in a really fatherly way. He's concerned, he's affectionate, he's warm towards them. These guys are his spiritual children, right? And this is remarkable because like I said, Peter Peter doesn't have a whole lot in common with them apart from Jesus. They're bound together only by their their faith in Christ. And it's not They probably don't even speak the same language. They don't have the same cultural background. They don't have the same heritage. They don't have the same, like, they don't even love the same sports teams, which, you know, if people around Boston and Massachusetts, like, that's some fighting words. I know, I'm from New York. You can come to me later. But... Their shared identity in Christ supersedes these very real differences in heritage, customs, language, and the like. My challenge for us today is how do we let that impact us here in this room? What would it look like for you and I to imagine the generations around us seeing ourselves connected to them because of our shared faith in Christ? and have that run far deeper than an age bracket. There's all kinds of jokes about millennials and boomers. You guys are boomers. I'm a millennial. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But for real, what would it look like for us to have a relationship like Peter has with, with his church in Asia Minor? For those of you that are older than me, this is what I would suggest. We need you guys to be like Peter. I need you to be like Peter for me. We need you to do the good thinking that I've been talking about in your own lives, just like Peter did, and then from a place of joyful stability, not fear, not paranoia, but from a place of joyful stability, reach out your hands to those of us who are in a different culture. We need you to scrub in the resurrection into every area of your lives, not just some areas, We need you to help us understand our own culture and how the resurrection reframes it. We need you to see yourselves as our older brothers and sisters who overlook the linguistic and cultural differences that divide us and reach out to us with good news that the resurrection reframes everything. We need you to walk with us and to teach us the skills of good thinking that you've learned over a lifetime. We need you to ask us questions to not assume you know where we're coming from, or to dismiss our concerns or fears or worries. We need you to let us see you doing the good thinking in front of us, to work out the resurrection reframing in front of us in real time, and not just behind closed doors because you're afraid of what we're going to think. We also need you to admit when you're wrong, and to show us where that line of thinking that you thought was good, or I'll just, I'll just cut this corner, or I'll just do this thing, or, or whatever. We need you to show us, hey, this is where that line of thinking actually took me, and here's how to avoid it, because it was actually really painful or harmful to me when I thought that was trustworthy at first. When I got my train out of order, this is how I actually crashed it. We need you to humbly engage with us and ask us for help. And we need you to be kind and forgiving when we ask you for finally, we need you to see your identity in Christ as deeper than any other identity. And in doing that, see us as your own. And to those of you younger than me, we need you to seek out and listen to the Peters in your lives. Not everyone older than you is a Peter yet, but you can still find them. Lily's not here anymore, but she's finding in her theology classes that Some Peters are dead for centuries, but you can still seek them out. For those of you that are younger than me, we need you to intentionally cultivate relationships with people outside your age bracket, people who are older than you, who have seen some of the dragons that you're seeing and who can tell you how to slay them. Just listening to your peers isn't really going to be enough for the kinds of places that you'll find yourself in. We need you to not repeat the same mistakes that we have. You don't need to duplicate the pain and confusion and the regret we have in order to know that something doesn't work. We need you to humbly engage with us and ask us for help. We need you to be kind and forgiving when we ask for help. We need you to show us the areas where we still need to do some good thinking. And we need, to see, we need you... To see your identity in Christ as deeper than any other identity. And in doing that, see us as your own. Like I said, I thought it was pretty interesting that Peter and his congregation were tied together by this threefold affirmation of Christ. And I think that is a deep hope for us that we're not that different, even though we might look it on the surface. So, In closing, I'd just like to walk us through a really quick exercise. What I'd like for each of us to do is close our eyes. In closing your eyes, I want you to imagine the thing you fear the most. What is it? Why are you afraid of it? Or why are you afraid of it happening? For me, it has a lot to do with my family and losing them before they've Helpful to you. Imagine it as an animal that's wicked, scary, or something else. But now I want you to imagine that thing that you are terrified of has lost its teeth. It's still there, but it's been drained of all of its power. Now I want you to imagine Jesus standing. want you to invite him to speak to you about how that resurrection, how his resurrection has disarmed that thing. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has, what are the implications for the thing you fear the most? Jesus, you are king over life and death and everything in them. Lord, thank you that you have done what we could not do and thank you that the implications of your victory on the cross are just beginning to be worked out. Lord, help us to do good thinking with your spirit so that we would not be afraid. But we would actually walk with you in joy and deep peace, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We won't be afraid, because you are with us. Lord, we commit all these things to you in your holy and precious name. Amen.